Well, first, happy pay attention to Love Day, everyone. It's nice to see so much red out there. Wes has been celebrating love on the Sunday closest to Valentine's Day for years, finding a time to focus on what love means for us in all areas of our lives. This year, Pay Attention to Love Day also fits into our monthly theme for February, which is love and compassion, a theme our children are exploring in their Sunday school classes as they discover what it means to show love and compassion to those we might not even know. And last week, we talked about one very specific aspect of love in the already semi-infamous, famous, I'm not sure, ethical sex platform. Well, we are not talking about sex this morning, but I do want to pick up on something that we talked about at the end of the platform last week, about the idea of covenant. One of my conclusions as I explored different choices around sex and sexual lifestyles was that I was defining covenant too narrowly. I decided by the end of last week that covenant might include all of us, all the time, that we are in relationship, in covenant with each other, whether we want to be or not. Last week, that had important implications for how we treat people with whom we are sexually involved, since being in covenant with someone assumes a kind of care for them, an attempt to treat that relationship with respect and love. This week, I want to think about what that covenant means for everyone else, not just people with whom we are sexually involved, not even people we think of ourselves as being in deep relationship with, but people that we are in some ways in covenant with, just by virtue of being human. And I want to think a little bit about what it means to break that covenant or to find that it has been broken by the other person. But first, what are we talking about with all this covenant language anyway? What does that even mean? My definition of covenant is simply an agreement that calls on our highest values, an agreement that is more than quid pro quo, that asks for our commitment to relationship, to respect, and to care. Of course, covenant means different things to different people, For many people, the idea of covenant brings to mind the Hebrew Bible, also called the Old Testament or the Torah, depending on which religious tradition you're asking. This may, on a side note, be the main difference between most religions and ethical culture. In the former, one rarely talks about sex on Sunday morning, while in the latter, one rarely talks about the Bible. (laughs) It's okay, hang in there. We're going to find a little wisdom, I think. In the early stories of the Hebrew Bible, the stories of Noah and the ark, of Abraham and Sarah, of Moses and King David, the idea of covenant is an especially powerful one. Each of those people and many of the other characters in the Hebrew Bible stories is described as having a special relationship with God, a special covenant. Sometimes that covenant is shown in a symbol, The rainbow that appears after the flood is a symbol of the new covenant God has made with Noah and his descendants. Abraham's name itself is a symbol of his covenant with God. In the beginning of the story, he is Abram and his wife is Sarai. And by the end, they are Abraham and Sarah, the H's in their names added to denote their new lives in covenant. 
The general idea behind all these covenants, because they do change over the different stories to reflect the Hebrew people's growing awareness of themselves, the general idea is that the individual promises to behave in a certain way, and God promises to watch over the individual and his family or tribe. Even though the parties in the covenant are very different, a deity and a plain old person, every covenant is reciprocal in some way. Every covenant requires something of both parties. And every covenant is broken. The Hebrew Bible is actually full of stories of people doing the wrong things at the wrong times. Last week's ethical sex platform could have included a whole piece on King David and his affair with the beautiful but forbidden Bathsheba. Aaron, Moses' right-hand man, messes up and lets the people build an idol made of gold, a major no-no as Moses had literally just finished telling them. (laughs) It's true. Abraham has some significant problems with a slave woman and her son. If you are looking for a book with plenty of people making really terrible mistakes, look no further. This is all to say that ever since the idea of covenants, and really the idea seems to have originated in the ancient Near East, like so many great ideas, there have been broken covenants. When I studied the Hebrew Bible in seminary, we traced the ways that the covenant between the Hebrew people and God was broken over and over, and remade over and over. Remaking broken covenants is very big in seminary. And actually, it's very big in life, too. It has to be, because as it turns out, the Hebrew people are not the only ones who break covenants. Like most stories in the Bible, those stories of covenant breaking and covenant remaking echo real experience. And real experience, for most of us, is a lifetime of messing up, breaking our promises, feeling the effects of others' broken promises, and finding a way to move forward. It's that last piece that I'm most interested in this morning, how we find ways to move forward when whatever covenant we're in is broken. In our own lives, our covenants aren't usually made with God after a worldwide flood and shown in symbology with an actual rainbow appearing overhead. They are more likely to be covenants we have with our spouse or our partner, covenants we have with our friends, covenants with our communities, perhaps with this very congregation. Sometimes the covenants are explicit, as when we get married or when we dedicate children to the care of the community. And sometimes they are simply implied, an understanding of how we want to be together, how we want to treat each other, because we are friends, because we are members of the same community, members of the same human family. And they are broken all the time. We break them when we fall short of how we want to be with the other person or people. Or they are broken by the other, broken by the failures and the promises forgotten or ignored of whomever it is we are in relationship with. Popular psychology seems to vacillate between suggesting that we ought to break off a relationship at the first sign of anything less than perfection and that we ought to forgive anything and everything that happens to us. My sense is that the reality of our lived experience is often more complicated than either of those options. 
The more I thought about this platform, the more I realized that it was really a platform about forgiveness, about how we offer and accept forgiveness, how we seek it for ourselves, and how we give it to ourselves. Forgiveness, of course, is a kind of classical religious theme, but I think too often the popular religious response is that we ought to be forgiving all the time, and in some sort of natural way, as though if only we are saintly enough, forgiveness will just radiate out from us toward the world. I remember very clearly the first time I thought about forgiveness on any kind of spiritual level. I was part of the multi-faith council at my undergrad college. The nice thing about growing up Unitarian Universalist is that you almost always get a seat at the multi-faith table. You know, they have to have two Christians and two Jews, two Buddhists, two Muslims, and then two Unitarians because they don't know what else to do with them. And there usually aren't more than two Unitarians on campus, so your chances of serving are really good. Anyway, this council, this multi-faith council, did things like gave faculty calendars with complete listings of religious holidays, promoted tolerance and understanding, but we also met for more introspective time together. One weekend, we went on retreat together to talk about forgiveness. I remember the conversation so clearly, the homey, slightly shabby living room at the retreat center, the overstuffed couches on which we sat. A Christian student spoke about her understanding of forgiveness, the idea that God could forgive anything, and that every person was free to ask for that forgiveness, that it was available to all. It was a beautiful and expansive idea, and she spoke with great love about it. But what resonated more for me that day was the explanation from the Jewish student that in his tradition, forgiveness could be given by God for sins against God, but that a sin against another person, a wrong done to another human being, needed to be forgiven by that person. I think our ethical culture response would be similar to that, that forgiveness requires us to actually repair a relationship. Certainly, it requires some relationship to begin with, and I think to be successful, for us to forgive someone else or to be forgiven ourselves, we need to work toward reestablishing that relationship, toward honoring the covenant that ties us together. We can't just hope for forgiveness to be handed down. We need to ask for it. Our children do this really well. One of the skills that they build in our Sunday school is how to repair a broken relationship. This past fall, the children talked about forgiveness using that beautiful story of Chachaji's cup. In a newsletter article that I found this morning written by Sunday School Director Peggy Gates with the help of three of our Sunday School children, the following steps for asking for forgiveness were laid out. First, accept responsibility. Second, figure out what you will do differently next time. Third, apologize for the specific thing that you did. And fourth, offer amends and prepare to be patient. I remember after that unit that we heard a story of one of our children using the process to work through a fight he'd had with his father and asking his father to use the steps too. It's wonderful when what we teach actually works, isn't it? 
but to even get to these steps, to be ready to make amends and hope that our apology will be accepted, we have to somehow deal with the broken part of the covenant. While I was preparing for this platform, a West member sent me a quote from Oprah, who I find to be a fascinating figure herself. Oprah, the West member, is also fascinating, but <laughs> I meant Oprah, sorry. <laughs> Bad reference. There we go. <clears throat> Oprah, hovering as she does between celebrity and philosopher. Oprah also seems to me to be someone who both has moved beyond, perhaps with forgiveness in her heart, some truly terrible times in her life, and who generally also appears to be the farthest thing from a doormat that I can imagine. So here is what Oprah said recently on a show. Forgiveness is giving up the hope that the past would have been different than it was. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? At first glance, it seems a little depressing. Giving up hope, after all, doesn't really sound uplifting. But I think it's really about release, about releasing ourselves from regret and wishful thinking, and about releasing whomever has wronged us from their own regret, releasing the past and allowing it to truly be past and not present anymore for us. I don't think, though, that this step can be done easily. I can't imagine that it's possible to just suddenly decide to let the past go. For me, a key step is acknowledging our pain around the past, acknowledging the truth of our grief. Papering over experiences of loss and of broken covenant rarely allow us to move forward in any meaningful way. Instead, we need to give voice to our disappointment, to allow ourselves to be heard, ideally by the one who hurt us, and at the very least, in our own hearts. Sometimes when we think about forgiveness, even if we are imagining it on the very personal level that most of us experience it, it can be helpful to turn toward those who have forgiven much, those who have repaired covenants that seem beyond reparation. At that same multi-faith retreat about forgiveness where I heard the Jew and the Christian talk about their own traditions, we watched a movie together that is similarly seared into my memory. It was a documentary about the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was essentially a kind of court created to allow South Africans to confront their very recent history of apartheid and to move beyond it. I don't remember the movie's title, although based on the timing of when I saw it, I think it must have been the PBS special done by Bill Moyers in the late 1990s. I do remember some of the stories about blacks killed by white policemen, about a white woman killed by black apartheid protesters. It turned out the woman was in South Africa to fight against apartheid with a social justice group. The movie followed these stories, followed the people as they struggled with the horror of what they had done and sought forgiveness. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was an amazing thing. As I understand it, it gave voice to victims of human rights abuses during apartheid and also heard testimony from perpetrators of abuses, in some cases granting amnesty to those perpetrators. What I remember most from the movie was the idea that you could only be considered for amnesty if you told the truth 
all of it, about what you had done. It meant acknowledging fully how you had failed, how you had broken the covenant we keep with each other as human beings, and then seeking forgiveness. Most of us have not experienced broken covenants of the magnitude addressed by the commission, but the idea behind it may serve us well. The idea that in order to repair a covenant, in order to seek or to give forgiveness, we must first tell the truth to each other. And I know that must be right because advice columnist Carolyn Hacks agrees with me. <laughs> she is forever telling letter writers to talk about an affair that, that, who talk about an affair that before they can move on with their relationship, they have to tell the truth to each other to acknowledge what happened. There's another thing about Carolyn Hacks that I think is often right, one echoed by plenty of people in pop psychology world. It's the idea that a broken promise, in the classic advice columnist case, this is indeed often an affair, but it needn't be only that, of course, that a broken promise within a relationship is usually a symptom of something else being wrong, something with the relationship itself. When our relationships are strong, not only do we tend to keep our promises, but we find the transgressions we do commit are easier to forgive. Soren Kierkegaard has a quote which speaks to this point. Perfect love, he wrote, means to love the one through whom one became unhappy. In other words, broken promises can be part of a whole love. Which makes me think that in some ways, broken covenants are actually the beginning of a yearning to return to relationship, to return to the foundation of the covenants themselves. If we didn't care about the relationship, we wouldn't care that it was broken, wouldn't try to give or receive forgiveness. To the extent that we are in relationship with each person, in covenant with each other all the time, we feel that pull back to each other. That pull, uncomfortable though it may be, as it requires the acknowledgement of pain and loss, is the pull toward human relationship, the pull toward love. As we heard Rumi write this morning, even if you have broken your vow a thousand times, come yet again come. Come toward love. What does all of this mean for us in ethical culture? What would be our response at that multi-faith gathering if we were asked about the role of forgiveness in our religious tradition? Well, of course, I think the answer can be found in a country song. Actually, what better genre for stories of forgiveness and redemption? <laughs> Relationships called together again. You lose your wife, your truck, your cow, and then you somehow transform the heartbreak into a love song with a steel guitar. Driving around this summer during my study leave, I heard a new song on the radio from Reba McIntyre. As the chorus soared up, I knew at once it was an ethical culture anthem. <laughs> I actually tried to get Melody to have a soloist take it on, but she pointed out very rightly that perhaps it was just actually one line of the song that was an ethical <laughs> culture anthem. The rest of it, when we really looked at the lyrics, turned out to be kind of about drunken misdeeds and the Bible. So <laughs> we didn't do it for you. 
But that one line, I keep on loving you, through the baby don't leave me's and never will again's and I promise to's, I keep on loving you. There are ways, of course, to see the song as one of a woman who doesn't know how to say enough is enough. But what I heard that day driving around was the story of love that endures heartbreak, that endures disappointment. For whatever reason, it made me think of love writ large, love for humanity. It made me think of our own religious tradition's insistence on the inherent worth of every person, of our faith in human goodness. It made me think of the possibility that we could keep on loving people, not just individual people, but people everywhere, humanity, even when they let us down, even when they break their covenants. That we might be able to expand our understanding of love to include even those whom we are not yet ready to forgive, even the past we are not yet ready to accept. Love that can wait for forgiveness when it comes. Because somehow, even in the brokenness of truly broken covenants, there is the possibility of love remaining, love existing within the wreckage. A colleague of mine, the Reverend Meg Riley, wrote a column recently for Pathios.com, a site about religion and spirituality. On this Valentine's Day, she wrote, I want to lift up all of the divorces that are based in love and integrity and honor them. Honor the separations themselves and people walking away from marriages and unions as blessed by God. We so frequently honor the beginnings of love and we fail to see the way we can find endings that are also bound in love, however painful. A couple much beloved to me recently found that their path led to divorce, and I was saddened for them both and grateful to see the love with which they ended their marriage, the respect and the care that they still brought to a covenant that had been broken, and their recognition that they remained in covenant with each other still, a covenant of friendship and one of humanity. Broken covenants will never carry with them easy answers. Forgiveness is found, I think, in the way we look for it, in our honest search for acknowledgement and reparation. This Valentine's Day, as we celebrate all the wonderful and happy ways that we love each other and the world, let us honor, too, the ways that we have fallen short of our promises and the courage and love that it takes to return to relationship again. <laughs>